Many years ago when I was uh, just a schoolboy, um, I went on a weekend camping trip with the Boy Scouts and in order to uh, follow the scout motto and to be prepared, I, I grabbed my backpack and I began filling it with all the essentials I knew I would need for the weekend. I put in my sleeping bag and a pillow and a change of clothes, a toothbrush, a flashlight, and of course, what kind of camping trip would it be if you didn't bring your pocket knife and threw a canteen in there, and I want to clarify a canteen, not a water bottle, a canteen. You know, listen, I was, yes, thank you, I was, I was set, I was ready to go, and the trip started off great. The first night was absolutely amazing. I can still remember to this day what it was like to, you know, get all of our tents set up and to build the campfire, and then once the campfire was good and and blazing, you know, we sat around it telling ghost stories, roasting s'mores, and just having a great time. But when I woke up the next morning, I realized that I was not quite as prepared and equipped as I should have been for the trip. You see, during the night, it had began to rain, and not just rain. I mean, it was a lot like this weekend, just some torrential downpour. And I realized pretty quickly the next morning I had not packed a poncho or any other rain gear and. I wasn't about to let that stop me, though. Uh, Even in the midst of the rain, we spent much of the day outdoors. You know, we played in the rain. I remember trying to do this nature walk through the mud. And um, we even went fishing and didn't catch a single thing. But we had a great time. The, The problem is, by the end of the day, I was cold and I was wet. But even in the midst of it, it was just a great weekend. However, couple weeks after returning home, uh, got pretty sick and came down with quite a terrible case of pneumonia. And, and so I was out of school for almost two weeks because I wasn't as prepared and equipped for this camping trip as I should have been. And I learned an important lesson that weekend, and it's this. When we're not prepared, that's when things can go wrong. In fact, things can really turn bad. So it's good for us to be equipped. And this morning, we're beginning this brand new series called Equip. And it's taken, this title's taken from Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, where it says, Equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. You know, this series, it's going to be an in-depth study through the book of Ephesians. And I have to tell you, I believe this is a perfect way for us to build upon the spiritual growth that we've seen over these last several weeks as we're coming off of the Are We There Yet series. It's been amazing to watch our church body as, and see how you've served and see how you've been committed to certain things and how you've grown. And the reason I feel this way is because the book of Ephesians, it's, it's actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul. In, in many of Paul's letters in the New Testament, what they do is they focus on, or they were written specifically to kind of address a specific error, or maybe a spiritual way of thinking or an activity that the church or the people he was writing to, what they had been doing, and, and he was trying to get them back, back on task. But Ephesians is just a little bit different. Instead of focusing on what we would say one particular heresy, Paul wrote this letter to the church of Ephesus with the specific intent of broadening his, reader, his readers' spiritual horizons. 
He wanted to help equip them for the mission and the purpose of the church. Again, a mission that God had for them both as individuals and as an entire church body. Ephesians deals with topics at the very core of what it means to be a Christian both in faith and through our practice. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, it's a marvelous statement of gospel, gospel doctrine and practice. He writes this letter, or as we call it sometimes an epistle, he does it to remind the believers in Ephesus of the glorious realities of their salvation and the great respons- responsibilities that fall on them. As uh, Ephesians 4.1 puts it, to walk worthy of the calling of which you have been called. The truth of Ephesians is simple. God, through his grace, he's given us each an eternal purpose, a mission that he wants all of us to carry out. Paul's hope is that all of us who read this letter will become equipped to fulfill that mission. You know, John Stott, he writes, the letter of Ephesians is a marvelously concise yet comprehensive summary of the Christian good news and its implication. He says that nobody can read it without being moved to wonder and worship and challenge to a consistency of their life. Many readers have been brought to faith and even stirred to good works by its message. One such person was a guy by the name of John Mackay. At one time, he was the president of the Princeton Theological Seminary, and he wrote this about Ephesians. He says, to this book, I owe my life. This is going to be an incredible study as we continue to equip ourselves in what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, make sure you're here each and every week to be a part of this study because it's our desire as the pastors here at BCC, that as a church, we would be equipped to take the message of Jesus Christ to our community and to the world. Now, before we dive further into the text this morning, what I want to do is I want to set the stage for us. I, I want us to understand what life was like in Ephesus when Paul wrote the letter to the church there. The city of Ephesus itself was a major urban center of Central Asia. This was a region that was overflowing at the time with prosperity. Ephesus was this port city. It was a a center of trade. We've got a map here. It it lies between Asia Minor and and Italy. It's behind me. And now there it is on the side of me too. But essentially it's kind of right in the middle of the map here. It was the best of Asia's seven urban centers. And this led to its overwhelming cosmopolitan nature. It was full of wide streets and luxurious homes, most of which were created to impress the tourists, and it was also filled with enormous public buildings. Ephesus boasted a 25,000-seat theater and dozens of temples. The greatest of these temples, which was the Tempus of Artemis or Diana, it was four times the size of the Parthenon, and it was then considered one of the seven wonders of the world. Spiritually speaking, though, Ephesus was dead. However, there were a variety, a wide variety of belief systems. 
Because along with the native people, Ephesus was home to Egyptians and to Greeks, to the Romans and to the Jews. So clearly the city was multi-ethnic and because of that, the city was full of all these beliefs from these different places. It was full of magic and shamanism and the occult arts, particularly, once again, the cult of Artemis. The official religion was the Roman cult of the emperor, meaning that the emperor himself was being worshipped as a deity by the people. However, this religion was actually not very well embraced by the people, but other beliefs there thrived. The people of Ephesus, they were often attracted to all these new things, whatever the new mystical or magical or religious doctrine of the day was, that caught their attention. And listen, there were many, many things that they were learning. You know, many people at the time, what they did is they kind of had this mix and match approach to their faith, to their spirituality. And so they borrowed whatever they liked from all the beliefs that were around them at the time. This in turn kind of led to like this a la carte religion. I'm going to pick what I like the best from all these different things. And what this did was this kind of led to a lot of cynicism about Christianity. Remember, Jesus himself said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And because these people of Ephesus liked to choose what they wanted, this was too narrow-minded for them. And this is what Paul taught. See, Paul had spent three years there on his third missionary journey in Ephesus. And during that time, there was a lot of things that happened. Um, There was a lot of heavy opposition to Paul. He was kind of messing up what the local salesmen were trying to sell from these other gods. But Paul, what he did was he concentrated on what was happening there. He concentrated on the gospel of Jesus and his purpose and his mission, which was to grow the church. It was to make disciples. And so the church of Ephesus, it was born, and not only was it born, but it actually thrived, it flourished. It provided and it pioneered the seven churches of Asia Minor. It was in Ephesus that Paul himself, he caught the vision that God gave him for reaching the whole Gentile world through the city of, um, or yeah, through the city of Rome. You know, I want you to check out Acts 19 if you want the full story of this, but essentially, This is where Paul gets his mission. And also while he's there, he decides to collect an offering from the Gentile churches so that both the Jews and the Gentiles might be united together in serving God's world salvation plan. And so after returning then to Jerusalem, Paul was arrested. And Paul was sent to Rome where he actually wrote this letter, the letter to the Ephesian Christians. This happened somewhere around A.D. 60. And it was during this time that Paul sat in a Roman jail undergoing his first Roman imprisonment. This makes Ephesians one of what we call the four prison epistles or letters. The others were Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. And I share all of this because I want you to understand the setting. I want you to understand over the next several weeks that this is the culture that Paul himself had lived in, but now Paul is writing too. And if you haven't already opened your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, I want to encourage you to do that now. And we're going to read chapter 1, verse by verse together. And I'm going to start with verses 1 and 2, and this is what it says. 
It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So using a format that was typical of ancient letter writing and very typical of his own letters as well, Paul takes the time right here to identify himself. He identifies himself by both his name and his position as the author of this letter. He says he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, and this means that Paul had been sent forth to carry the message of his Lord and his Savior, Jesus Christ. It says he's done this by the will of God. This means that Paul was specifically chosen. He was called and he was sent to teach with authority. This was a ministry that Paul himself did not volunteer for, nor had the actual church actually appointed him to do it. So what Paul's saying is he's absolutely aware of the importance of his apostleship and that he's also very conscious of the fact that he did not become an apostle on his own merit, by his own skills, by his own device, by his own gifts. No, he says on the contrary, his apostleship, it's derived from the very will of God and from the choice and the commission of Jesus Christ himself. And because of this, I want us to know that we must, but we have to listen to the message of Ephesians with appropriate attention. John Stott, he writes, for we must regard its author neither as a private individual who is ventilating his personal opinions, nor as a gifted, fallible human teacher, nor even as the church's greatest missionary, but as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And therefore, as a teacher whose authority is precisely the authority of Jesus Christ himself, in whose name and by whose inspiration Paul is writing. As Charles Hodge expressed, he says, the letter of Ephesians reveals itself as the work of the Holy Spirit, as clearly as the stars declare their maker to be God. So what we see is that Paul wrote the letter. He wrote this letter, and in in the second part of verse 1, he tells us who he is writing to. He says he's writing to the saints in Ephesus, the saints. And it's important for us to understand that when Paul uses this word saint, he's not referring to some sort of spiritual elite people within the congregation. He's not speaking to some minority of exceptionally holy people. What he's saying is this, he's referring to all of God's people. He's referring to us, he's referring to saints as the holy ones, those who have been set apart, those who have been consecrated by Jesus Christ. He's also writing to those who are faithful. Those who are faithful, those who have put their trust and their commitment in Christ Jesus as the objects, as the object, I'm sorry, of their faith. And he's also writing, it says, to those who are in Christ I'm not sure if you know this or not, but in the first 14 verses of Ephesians chapter 1, in Christ or in him is repeated 13 times. There's something extremely important about being in Christ Jesus. To be in Christ is to be personally 
united with him. To be united with him as branches are to the vine. We are in him and he also is in us. We draw our life and we draw our strength from Jesus Christ. And if we're cut off from him, we are spiritually dead. It also means to be united with him as members of his body and thereby also to Christ's people, to the church. According to the New Testament and especially to the writings of Paul, to be a Christian is in essence to be in Christ, to be with one with him and also to be one with his church, with his people. So Paul's description to his readers here, who he's writing to, is comprehensive. He says he's writing to the saints because they belong to God. He says he's writing to the faithful because they have trusted in Christ Jesus. And I hope you caught this. He is also writing and saying that they come from two homes. He's saying that number one, they reside equally in Christ, but also in Ephesus. All Christians are saints and believers and live in Christ in both, I'm sorry, live both in Christ and live also in the secular world. And as a side note here, I I just want to add, I think many of our spiritual troubles, they arise from our failure to remember this, to remember that we are citizens, in fact, of two kingdoms. We tend either to pursue Christ and we forget about the world, we withdraw from it, Or we become too occupied with the world and then we forget that we are in Christ. You know, you've probably heard it said that as Christians, we're called to be in this world, but not of this world. I think it's important to note that this isn't even a direct quote from Scripture. You can't necessarily find it, but I do believe that this notion is consistent with the teaching of the New Testament. In the words of Jesus himself in John 15, 19, it says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And as Jesus is praying to God just not too long before he was arrested and crucified, he's praying and he's praying for his disciples in John 17, 14 through 16. And he says, I have given them your word He's talking about his disciples, talking to God. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of this world, just as I am not of the world. You know, it seems that Jesus very well understood this tension that each and every one of us would experience as Christians living in this world. You know, Jesus, as well as the authors of the New Testament, they encourage us to continue our relationships with those in the world around us. But they also say to be careful to live in a way that pleases God, not the culture. You know, I find it very interesting that it says here in this passage that we just read that Jesus prays that God would not, would not take his disciples out of this world. I also find it extremely interesting that we don't ascend up into heaven the moment we accept Christ as our Savior. And I believe the reason he doesn't pray that God takes his disciples back then and the reason that we don't ascend to heaven immediately upon our decision to accept Christ as our Savior is because he has a purpose for us here. He has a mission. He has a plan that he wants us to accomplish And we're going to continue to uncover this purpose and this plan as we continue through this series. 
So let's continue. I want to read verses 3 through 14. And I find it interesting, and I want to share that in the original Greek, which was the language this was written in, this basically, all these verses constitute one long grand sentence. This was an ongoing stream of consciousness. So when we read it, we're going to read it as one long sentence. Uh, I promise you I'll probably take a breath or two in between. And then what we're going to do is we're going to go back and I want to look at each of these passages individually and see what they have to say to us. So join me as we begin in verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined for us Um, I'm sorry, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. I hope you're catching all these in Christ and in him. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him through uh, things in heaven and things on earth. I'm taking a breath. All right. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first hope, uh, first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Listen, there's so much awesome stuff here and we kind of flew through that again, one sentence, my goodness. But what I want to do is I want to go back and I want to look kind of at each verse individually and to see what it has to say for us. So let's start with verse three. It says, blessed be to the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This passage, it tells us that God has blessed us. God has blessed us, amen? Listen, he's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In fact, in just these 12 verses that we just read from, you know, it outlines seven. Seven spiritual blessings which all of God's children share. So in the time that we have left together this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at these seven blessings. Um, I've actually taken this from Kenneth Bowles' commentary, but as I was reading through it and I saw this, I thought, man, this is great and I want to share it. Listen, I believe the better we understand these blessings, the better equipped we are going to be to love and to serve God and his church. So blessing number one, we see that we are chosen. We are chosen. Verse 4, it tells us, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God chose us. That just blows my mind. God chose me. He did not force Himself, or I was not forced upon Him, I should say. He chose me. He chose you. He wanted us. You know, this was no last-minute decision on his part either. In fact, he made his choice before the world was ever 
created. This passage says he chose us before the foundation of the world, before creation, before time began. However, I think we also need to understand that this verse is so many times wrongly understood to mean that God chooses some people to go to heaven and other people to go to hell. This view that has been out there, it says that regardless of a person's own choice, it is said that his or her destiny has already been predetermined by God. But what I want to show this morning is I think this view, it ignores the fact that all throughout the New Testament, people are told to repent. People are told to repent and they are offered salvation because of it. So their destiny, it depends on their response. Their response to Jesus and what they do with him. You know, Jesus himself, he actually taught on this. He teaches it in the parable of the wedding feast, which is found in Matthew chapter 22. He says that to be included among the chosen, it says that people must not only be invited, but that they themselves have to accept the invitation. And I want you to know that we've all been invited. We just have to choose. So what does God choose here? What what does this mean? God chooses to receive each and every person in this world who lives now, who has ever lived, as long as they are in Christ Jesus, it says. Unfortunately, many people will not accept Jesus. And those who do not accept him, they, they aren't a part of this. But those who do, those of us who accept his son Jesus as our savior, we make him our Lord, we believe in him, says we're given the privilege to become his sons and his daughters. And this leads us to our second blessing. Blessing number two, we are predestined to be adopted. Predestined to be adopted. Verse five, it says, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God's loving plan of salvation calls for everyone who accepts Christ to be received as his sons and his daughters. The word used for sons in the Greek, it also embraces this word female. It embraces both genders. We see here again the word predestined. And once again, this is a word that has caused a lot of uh, confusion throughout the years. What I want us to know is this. God did not predestine which people would accept Christ. He predestined that whoever did accept him, whoever does accept him, would be adopted into his family. The Greek word for predestined, it literally means to set boundaries out in advance. What this means is, think about it in terms of property. God went out and he staked out the boundaries for the group of people that he would adopt. By a sovereign decree, he said all of those in Christ would be a part of this group. So whether a person is in God's group depends on what that person does individually with Jesus Christ. Have they made him their Lord and Savior? God's adoption of us was initiated by God himself. And the decision to make us his children was made before either we or the world existed. Listen, I want you to understand, there was a determination. 
a determination before everything. There was a purpose on the part of God to enlarge his families by bringing in rebels and sinners like us and allowing us to be a part of it. So what is it, what's the reason that God gives for adopting us? He does it because he loves us. He loves us according, it says, to the purpose of his will. And what is this will? What is this talking about? Listen to me. God wants all people to be saved. That no one should, be, should perish. He wants all of us to repent and be saved, to come to know his son Jesus and accept him as our Lord and Savior. That's his will. And why is that his will? What does he do through a blessing? Number three kind of tells us we are given grace. This is our third blessing. Each and every one of us were given grace. Verse six, it says, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now God's grace, it's been graciously and it's been freely given. It's free of charge, but only to those, it says, who are in the beloved. And once again, here's where we see this term, in Christ or in him, because beloved refers to in Christ. Many scholars, biblical scholars, they believe that the term, the beloved, it, it was a messianic title that was used by the Jews of that century. These same scholars, they believe that this was taken from the time that Jesus himself was baptized and God spoke out and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God's love for his son is so great that he gladly embraces us for Jesus' sake. So those who unite themselves with Christ are given God's grace. Blessing number four, we are redeemed. Verse says, seven says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. In Christ, and only in Christ, do we have redemption. In the ancient world, to redeem something was to pay the necessary ransom for it, to set free a prisoner or a captive or a debtor who was sold into slavery. Our self-incurred debt was slavery to sin. And the rightful consequences to that sin is the wrath of God. Ephesians 5, 6, it tells us, for because of these things, because of these sinful things, if you go and read the previous verses of Ephesians 5, it talks about the sinful things that we do, and it says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And another thing is the death of the sinner, another consequence. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. That's the wage that should have to be paid Listen, the price that rescued us all from that, from that wage, is the blood of Jesus Christ. God's forgiveness, I'm sorry, of us through Christ's blood, it's not merely just kind of covering up our sins, but what it means is it totally erases, it totally removes, and it totally sends these sins away from us. Blessing number five, it says that we are told the mystery of his will. Verses 8 and 9, it's talking about his grace, the grace of Christ. It says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Man, I hope you're hearing it. This is all because of Jesus. All of this is because of Christ. 
God spared no expense for us. He spared no expense in providing his children his grace. His grace is lavished on us, it said. That means it's overflowingly poured out. If it was poured into a cup, it'd just be overflowing. He's poured all that upon us. And accompanying this amazing grace, there's even more. He says, we also get the wisdom and we get the insight into this secret plan. We can understand God's plan. We can be equipped to live in the light of it. One of the ways that God has lavished his grace upon us, this is saying, is by revealing this mystery, which is his plan of salvation. He's given it to all of us, and he's given it to us through his word. For all the earlier ages, this plan had been kept a mystery. But now it says that this mystery has been revealed. And the word mystery in the Bible, it does not mean that something is complicated or that something is difficult to understand. What it just means is this. What, what was a secret has been kept a secret until God reveals it. And God has now revealed that the world was saved through the death and the resurrection of his son Jesus to those who believe in him and accept him. And when that happens... We come back to blessing number six, and it's something that's amazing. It says, we have obtained an inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance, verse 11, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So for time's sake, we're going to just make this really simple. In Christ, we are admitted to the ranks of the chosen people, the adopted children of God. And because we are his children... Each and every one of us will receive this inheritance. We get eternal life with him in heaven. That's our inheritance. We get God and he gets us. And finally, the seventh blessing, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Verses 13 and 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So those who heard the word of truth, those who heard it and believed in it, they had put their trust and they had put their commitment and their faith in Christ alone. And in response to their decision, because they said, I want to follow Jesus, it says here that God has marked them. He has marked them with this official seal and the official seal he's talking about is the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And because they have the Spirit, because they overflowed with this proved that they were in Christ, this proved that they belong to God. And I want us to know that God has done the same thing for us today. When we believe in him, when we put our faith in Christ Jesus God equips us. Jesus equips us with the power and the presence of his Holy Spirit. And it is this Holy Spirit, it's the Spirit of God that empowers each and every one of us, that equips each of us to do the ministry, the various types of ministry that we've been talking about for these last several months, this ministry to go. He gives us the ability, he equips us to go, to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them. To take somebody under our wing and, and, and help mature them in their faith. 
It's the spirit that does that. We don't do it on our own. The same way Paul knows he's not responsible for writing this letter, but it's the power of God in him, that is Christ in him. That's the same power, like Derek spoke about last week. The power that rose Christ from the dead is the power that lives and resides inside of us and can make us be effective ministers for the gospel, amen? Listen, these are great blessings. And in case you missed any of them, what I want you to do is I just want to go through them, I guess one more time for the folks at home. Listen, we're chosen, all right? We are chosen. We are predestined to be adopted. We are given grace. We are redeemed. We are told the mystery of his will. We have obtained an inheritance, and we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So finally, as we start to wrap up, Paul gives us these seven blessings, and then what he does is he prays for us. He gives us these seven blessings that God wants to equip us with as his children through Christ. Now in the second half of this chapter, what he does is he prays. He prays that our eyes would be opened. That our eyes would be opened and not only those who were back a part of the church of Ephesus back then, but this is our prayer for us today. Paul prays that we would fully grasp all of these blessings and truly understand what they mean for us in our life. And I'd like to read this prayer together, starting in verse 15. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the, and the measurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Wow. I mean, talk about being equipped. And my hope and my prayer for you today is that you would understand these blessings. That you would understand what each and every one of these blessings means for your life today. Because we've been blessed. And we've been equipped. We've been equipped for the purpose and the plan of God's ministry in our life. It's the reason that Jesus prayed that God would not yet take his disciples. It's the reason that we don't ascend to heaven immediately after, you know, accepting Christ as our Savior. And yes, where that would be something that is wonderful. We have to understand eternity doesn't begin when we die. We're living in the midst of eternity as Christians right now. He came and he died to give us a full life, to give us an abundant life. And when we understand these blessings and we do the ministry that he's called us to do, when we live according to the purpose of his plan for our lives, we live this abundant life. And let's stop 
just thinking, oh, you know, I just can't wait to get to heaven. Yes, it's going to be good, well, well worth it, and much better than any of us could ever expect. But Jesus has a purpose and a plan for you right now. So let's start living in this blessing. Now listen, as we prepare for next Sunday, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you first off to be here each week. We're talking one hour of your week. Can you commit that to Jesus? Can you say, I want to be here so I could hear his word, so I can know how to be equipped, so I can know how to do ministry? And secondly, what I want to encourage you to do is read Ephesians chapter 2 this week. Read it. Try to work it out on your own. Pray about it. Pray over it. Ask God to give that to you. You know, I took the, a course in the, over this letter when I was in college. I went to Atlanta Christian College, and every week we had to read the entire chapter. That was our assignment for the class. We had to read it, and we had to, not only that, we had to journal on it and really say what God was speaking. And it's just amazing. I read the chapter, you know, the entire book like 12 times over the course. And every week, because it says Scripture is living and active, I read something different every week. God revealed something to me different every week. And so our hope through this series is that you would come prepared, that you would read in advance, but that you would leave equipped for ministry. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for these blessings that we read on. That because we are in Christ, Lord, you have blessed us. And you've blessed us in these wonderful, incredible ways. And you've blessed us to prepare us for ministry. That's your plan. That's your purpose for each of us. We don't have to sit back and wonder what your will is. We don't have to sit back and say, gee, I wish I wish I knew what God's plan was for my life. No, you've told us. Ministry. Discipleship. To go. And Lord, right now, I just want to pray. I just ask that you would bless all of us. Lord, if something's unclear, I just pray that you would reveal it. Father, that you would anoint us with the power and the presence of your spirit as we go this week, that we would be encouraged to understand our blessing and understand our call. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.